Hey, this is Rick Riordan, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Yeah, man, children, children listening, listening in, in very, very strange, weird positions and activities. Like, you think they're not pay- truck you, I mean, you all know, you think a child is not paying attention, and they are hearing every word that you're saying, they listen and they to will, everything, everything, everything <laughs> and they will parrot it back to you at, a, at the most inopportune moment in time <laughs> in public. You know it. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online and right here wherever you download your podcast apps from. Uh, there are a bajillion different apps and, and websites, so I don't know where you found us, but thank you for finding us and continue to find us there. You can hit subscribe. Um, you can also find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and therorbots.com. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at the Roarbots and Roarworthy. And joining me this week, as always, is Sherry. And you can find me on Twitter at SW Sondheimer and on Instagram as irate underscore Corvus. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It has been a while since we've come out with a new episode. I'm not sure if anybody has even noticed... Um, <laughs> but uh, we, I have pulled back a little bit from the show. I used to kill myself trying to get an episode out every single week. That's how we got up to 200-whatever episodes we're at right now. Um, I, you know, life happens, and there's a lot of other stuff that gets in the way, and I just wasn't, it wasn't feasible for me to keep that kind of schedule. So um, I've pulled back, and kind of in an irregular schedule now. I don't want to promise, like, every two weeks, every three weeks. I feel like um, I'm at a good place right now where it's just, if cool interview opportunities come along, I will take them, and then we'll do an episode. But I'm not going to kick kill myself trying to uh trying to keep up with some arbitrary schedule that i I place on myself well and if 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 folks miss you then you know there are some other podcasts in the robots podcast network now there are other podcasts uh we have the whole network we are if you're looking for cool interviews um we're pretty much the only game in town (laughs) um but i mean there's other podcasts obviously um but we have a whole bunch of other shows. We've got Wayback Attack, which is uh, if you are a fan of um, sort of nostalgia and retro fun, that's a great show. That's hosted by uh, Brian Grantham and Preston Burt. Um, there's the Jiminy Crickets podcast. So if you are a fan of Disney or Disney music or uh, Disney theme parks, um, Chris has got your back over there. And then there's the Bodaciously Awesome Family Show. Um which gets me right in the soft spot since they're another ridiculously long-named show. Um, <laughs> but that is Adam and usually his kids talking about fun, awesome stuff that they do together as a family. So it's a little bit of a, of a mishmash, and uh, they're all great shows, and they're all a little bit different, which is by design. Um, but uh, if you're looking for awesome interviews with creative people, we will still be here. It's just, I am sorry, we're not going to be able to bring you... A new episode every week. But if you've just found us, good news is you've got about five years and 200-some episodes worth of content you can you can make your way through. Um, but here we are, top of 2020, and our first interview that we're going to bring you guys for this year is with none other than Kwame Ambalia. Um, it is no surprise for anybody who has listened to this show before that Shiri and I are huge fans of not only Rick Riordan, but also the Rick Riordan Presents line of books um we've had many of the authors on the show uh and um we always jump at the chance to to have new authors that join the imprint join us here on the show as well and so we talked to kwame a couple weeks ago now about tristan strong punches a hole in the sky and i'm gonna shut up and let um shiri just sort of uh, walk you guys through the, the the what you need to know 
what they need to know. Um, <laughs> well, this story centers around a young man named Tristan Strong, obviously, who ends up sort of falling into the world of African and African American gods and culture heroes. Um, for the purposes of the book, they're kind of the same mm-hmm. um, sort of entity. Um, he's looking for a Nazi. He has a very special position as a storyteller. I don't want to give too much else away. And he has a great team working with him. He, he has a great team, <laughs> but he's a reluctant hero. He, like, he he's does, a reluctant hero. He does not want, you know, as opposed to something like, um, like Percy Jackson, who at the beginning was maybe slightly reluctant, but then sort of just embraced who he was and, and wanted to find out more. Tristan sort of for much of the book is very reluctant to admit to what everybody else is telling him that he is. And he just wants to get home. He just wants it to all be over. Um, and he is not super jazzed about being where he is and surrounded by all these gods that he has only heard stories about and didn't really know that they were real. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a fantastic. And what what I think is amazing is this is Kwame's debut book. First book. I mean, yep. it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Not only that um, he gets such a welcome to the publishing world with such a huge name in Rick Riordan and in, in, in the imprint, but the book itself just reads so polished. Like, it reads like somebody who has a few books under their belt already. If you have not picked up a copy of Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, what are you doing with your life? Really, um, get it on your Amazon wish list. Get it at your local bookstore. Just get it in your hands. If you've got a young one who is a fan of mythology, who is a fan of the Rick Riordan types book, who is a fan or interested in uh, African and African-American culture and stories and, and folklore, then this is... I mean, it's a no-brainer. I've been reading it slowly to my son um, at bedtime, and he's just he in love with it. He he, I have to read like multiple chapters every night just because he he won't go to bed until he finds out what happens next. And I read it myself, and then my husband read it to the kids. Um, and if you have a way to read this book out loud, I even if you're reading it out loud to yourself, um, I would highly recommend partaking of it that way. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was is... it was a great read just as a read, um, but the the cadence that it's written in is very much the way a story would be told out loud orally, um, yeah. which is an important part of the story in and of itself. Right. So if if there's a way, even if you're just reading it to yourself, read it out loud if you can. And it also uh, is, I mean, it's just fun to read out loud because of the voices. And mm-hmm. um, I find myself having to switch back and forth from I've, from Gum Baby, who I gave a very high voice to, to John Henry, who has a very deep voice. Um, <laughs> so it is. It's a lot of fun to read out loud. And if you've got kids, um, definitely make it fun for them. Um, but without further ado, here is our conversation with Kwame Ambalia, author of the latest... I think it's the most recent. Well, no, well, Rebecca's no, came Rebecca's, out today. Rebecca's came out. Um, the second most recent <laughs> book in the Rick Riordan Presents line, um, Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky. Um, it, thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thank you for hitting subscribe. Thank you for getting our podcast in your podcast catcher app, whatever you use to listen to. We love um, bringing these conversations to you. We love talking to creative people. Uh, please do get in touch with us on Twitter at uh, the GBB Podcast or Roarworthy. You can get in touch with me at the Roarbots and Shiri uh, at SW Sondheimer. And thank you, guys. We will see you next time here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. And here is Kwame Ambalia. Take care. I. It, what's funny is that um, we are big fans of pretty much. 100% all of them, all of the uh, Rick Riordan Presents books that have been coming out, and we've been steadily having all of the authors on the show, so uh, it's like it's like checking boxes at this point, but it's like, we, we love these conversations because just like the books, y'all are so different, and the conversations have just been so enlightening and fascinating, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> awesome, I can't wait. Um, tr- let's start, obviously, with Tristan. 
Um, Tristan Strong is your debut novel. Um, and it has made one heck of a splash. I mean, it seems like every time I turn around, it's on another list. It's on another best of list. It's winning more awards. So first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, how, kind of a standard starter question, but how did you get involved with uh, with the Rick Riordan Presents line? Uh, so Rick Riordan Presents is a line, it's an imprint of Disney that, you know, target targets the... Um, different cultural mythologies. And um, when uh, I found out, when we found out that they were looking for an African-American perspective, uh, I mean, I, I jumped on it. I think I wrote the uh, the proposal for it in like over a winter break, maybe like six days or so, just, you know, three chapters and a synopsis. It was just flying out of me and... Um, we we submitted it and they loved it and you know the rest is history so i'm just really fortunate and thankful that uh we were able to get in front of them and they were you know willing to take us on now was this a story that had been sort of percolating in your brain for a while and you were just like ah finally this is the avenue for me to tell that story or did you see the opportunity and then the story came to you as you thought about what would be a best fit uh, a little of both i've always wanted to tell a story um with uh, the folk heroes that I grew up reading and listening to. Um, so John Henry and Hi John and the Flying Ladies, like all of these characters have been kind of like lurking in the back of my mind. Just, you know, uh, any writer will tell you that they have characters at any given point tapping on their, you know, uh, trying to get their attention um, to write about them. And it's just never the opportune moment. And this, you know, like I said, it just kind of all fell together in my lap wonderfully. And I, you know, it's a, a mix of both, uh, six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, all of the books in this series, like I, I said at the top, like they're, they've all been so different, but they all have that um, common theme. You know, they're all, they're all tied together in that they share similarities with Rick's books. You know, they, they explore these mythologies and how the, the, the worlds of the gods and the worlds of the humans, you know, intermingle and combine and, and, and influence one another. Um, but you all have, I think, challenges that Rick maybe didn't have when he was writing, you know, his ancient Greek, Roman, Egyptian mythology-based books. But what, so what do you think, what, what are some of the challenges that you and the other new authors in the Presents line face that maybe Rick didn't have to deal with? <clears throat> That is a wonderful question, and I think, what for me personally, one of the biggest challenges is um, there's a there's a phrase um, that goes, you know, this is you know this culture is not a monolith, you know, mm-hmm. like there is no one exact representation of a particular culture. It's multifaceted. There are different variations, different views, different practices. Even you know, if when, when you're talking about one. Um, particular belief or custom and so the constant challenge for me was to push back on myself and say and and ask myself was I doing a fair representation um of this particular character is this you know how the folktale was you know there are common tropes with this folktale is am I being faithful to those um because it's it's like we're even though the culture you know is not a monolith you know, thousands upon hundreds or I don't know how many, you know, mm. tons of readers <laughs> will, you know, see this book and instantly, whether they um, intentionally do it or not, will begin to associate, you know, what they read in there. And, you know, that will be the foundation for what they believe about a particular culture. Right. And so it's like we have to take great pains to make sure that we are providing proper and accurate representation because bad representation you know, is is worse than no representation at all. Did that stress you out? I mean, it sounds like that's, I mean, that's a heavy burden to put on yourself. I mean, so to, as you were writing, obviously, you probably knew that this was, um, you know, the, the, the effect that it was going to have. So did that, did that sort of, did that put an undue weight on your shoulders as you were writing beyond just getting the words on the page? Um, you know, I grapple, I grapple with the term undue weight. I think we, I think we have a responsibility and we owe it to ourselves to make sure that we're providing proper representation. Now, you know, 
did I, as a writer, take it too far, or do other writers take it too far? I'm a hundred percent, a hundred percent sure we do. Uh, I mean, I still wake up thinking like, did I tell this right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, the book has been out, it's been released, um, and it's in the reader's hands now, and they're going to form their own opinions about it. And I and I constantly fret, you know, like, did I do it justice? And I think it's just something that um, we as writers that come from backgrounds that are not, uh, you know, the majority in publishing right now, like, I think that's just something that we will always, you know, we will always and we will continue to face, you know, as we write these stories. Yeah. That kind of ties really neatly into our next question, uh, which is, you know, at its heart, uh, Tristan Strong, it's, a story about the importance of cultural memory and this really vital task of passing it down to the next generation. Um, is that something, is that an idea you've always been steeped in or did you discover it later as an adult? Um, I think it's, it's uh, something where it was kind of, Uh, My subconscious was picking up on it. You know, my parents did a wonderful job of scouring the earth, trying to find these stories. Um, And it's hard because um, they're either not written down, they're passed down through oral traditions, or they're written down, but they're obscure because they haven't been picked up by a traditional, you know, quote unquote, big publisher. Right. Um, So they don't have the market uh, penetration of a more. Uh, uh, Hardy Boys or Encyclopedia Brown, you know, something, another, you know, a couple of books that I read as a, as a child. Um, and so as I, you know, grew up, I became conscious of that I wanted to tell these stories. I wanted to get them written down and out there and passed along and for a new generation of children to read them and to share with them and to listen to them as I did. Um, because, like, as, you know, what un- unfolds and transpires in the story. Like once you begin to forget parts of yourself, you know, it's, it's impossible to really get that back. That um, it's interesting because when Shiri and I were both reading the book, one of the things that we commented, and we actually were just talking about this again before we got on with you is that when you read the book, it has a very different cadence um, in the way that it's written and um, the way that the dialogue is written and the way that the narrative is written than it does to, to, to many other books. And it sounds, as you're reading it, it sounds like it's meant to be read aloud. It sounds like it's meant to be part of that oral tradition. It sounds like you're listening to something. And I was just remarking that I've been reading it to my son at bedtime, and I was commenting that it's just it's a blast to read aloud um, because the characters are so vibrant and the dialogue you give them is so much fun to say aloud, but just the re- like the entire cadence of the story just it just it hits those beats that it's it's um, it, I, I mean I've just said it three times like it, it's meant to be read aloud so it seems obvious but tell me if we're wrong that that was your intent as you were writing it well and. I- I also, I read it myself, and now my husband is reading it to the kids, and I'm having two very different experiences. So It's, you know, those are great points. And Shuri, I want to address yours first in that you read something totally different mm-hmm. when you're reading it to yourself versus when you're reading it aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I think it's just, you know, my hypothesis or whatever, it's just that your eyes tend to... Um, skip a little bit when you're reading it to yourself and um, you fall into just the, I want to di- digest this as quickly or as efficiently as possible. Whereas when you're reading it aloud, you're giving it life, you're giving it a persona, you know, these characters, they're not all, you know, um, when you're when you're in your head, you know, it's kind of one voice. However, when you're reading it aloud, especially to someone else, um, you're providing these different voices. And uh, it is something that I think unintentionally came about as I was writing. And then, you know, when I when I and when my editor, uh, when we were going back and forth, we realized that this was a um, this was a story that is meant to be shared vocally. Um, and I mean, if you think about it, that's all writing is. It's it's transcribing something for someone else to read to someone else. Um, and all stories, I think, are meant to be shared. And. Tristan, it has that cadence, 
because, you know, as I think about it, I'm thinking about storytellers around the fire, you know, telling a chapter, telling a scene, um, sharing it with children for them to go off and reenact it themselves in their rooms, in their tents, what have you. Um, and so, yeah, I think the 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 vibrant cadence of Tristan, it kind of it it. It, I don't want to say I discovered it. I feel like it just kind of came about naturally. Mm-hmm. Did you read it aloud as you were writing? Like once you once that came about naturally, did you then sit back after you finished a chapter and, and read it to yourself and think like, yeah, that's working or, or no, I got to fix this part because it just doesn't sound right, literally? Not all of it, but definitely the dialogue. Yeah. Um, John Henry, Hi John, Gumbaby, and Grandad. Um, they have four completely different patterns of speech and words and dialects that they use. Um, and I would absolutely be doing them a disservice if, you know, they started sounding the same. And so, yeah, I mean, I think all writers tend to speak a little bit out loud when they're, you know, um, writing dialogue for this characters, for their characters. Uh, and in this case, like it was, uh, it was a little bit excessive. (laughs) was there someone who passed this sort of someone in your life when you were young who made you want to be a storyteller someone in particular um yes i have i've always wanted to be a writer and i think my partner in crime in that is my mother um, my mother is an English uh, and a literature professor at the University of, uh, well, she's retired at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, and she was my first uh, critique partner and my first editor. Um, I remember going to uh, the school that I would eventually graduate from, Howard University in Washington, D.C. She would head up to uh, Founders Library over the summer to do research for her books. Um, and so that kind of seeped its way into my, you know, everyday life. And I still, you know, we'll still hop on the phone. We'll talk about the latest, you know, um, writing magazine issue or, you know, the latest podcast about authors. Uh, she was a big, um, Tony, like a huge Tony Morrison fan. She wrote several pieces on Tony Morrison. So of course, when, uh, uh, Miss Morrison passed, you know, we had a long conversation about that. So, my mother has always been like my inspiration when it comes to the craft of writing, um, you know, both for, for good and bad. I still remember, you know, critiques that she sent back to me. <laughs> so what's the significance for you of Tristan stepping into the role of storyteller as a teenager? He's he's young for that. He's much younger than the other gods and culture heroes that are around him? Um, I think the biggest thing is that children, they see stories differently and they understand and receive stories differently. Um, I think as an adult, a lot of times we get um, cynical and um, we take a story at face value. You know, it's a good piece of entertainment. Whereas children take a story and they internalize it and um, understand how they can employ some of its morals and meanings in their own lives. And so having Tristan as a storyteller brings new life to the stories, literally, and the book for the others around him. Um, as an anansisim, as a as a carrier of the Anansi tales, he gets to collect stories, travel with them, and then share them with others. And I think having a child, a teen, a kid do that, um, it's, you know, it's it's just the epitome of that saying where it's like, you know, um, uh, from, from the mouth of a child, like you, you see things clearer or you see things in a new light. And I think, you know, I think that's one reason why middle grade books in particular are so popular and fascinating right now for both children and adults because we're, you know, we're writing new stories and providing new tales for a wide variety of generations to digest and internalize. And, you know, they get to see them in a new light. It's interesting when you say internalize. We we actually started reading Rick's books to my son when he was very young. He was like three. 
and he'd be we'd be reading and he'd be running around and doing stuff and we thought he wasn't listening and it turned out that he was acting out what he he was he had internalized and then was acting out what we had just read to him so mm-hmm. he was listening mm-hmm. Yeah, so man, it's, children, it's, children listening, <laughs> listening, and and very, very strange, weird positions and activities. Like you think they're not pay, truck. You, I mean, you all know. You think a child is not paying attention, and they are hearing every word that you are saying. They listen and they to will everything, everything, everything <laughs> and they will parrot it back to you at a, at the most inopportune moment <laughs> in time in public. You know it. <laughs> did you read to you? Did you read to your kids as you were writing? Not as well, uh, partially. Um, what I do is my older two daughters, uh, nine and eleven, right now. Um, they would be my um, kind of like my joke squad. My, they're my my beta <laughs> testers for jokes, right? Or or puns, and you know, or funny scenarios. And I would run certain situations by them to see if they would laugh, you know. And if they did, I was like, all right, yeah, got you. You know, this is going in the book. <laughs> But if it, you know, if it didn't miss or it didn't stick or whatever, I would be like, okay, I've got to either this is bad or I've got to rework it, make it simpler, you know, give them a punchier uh, joke or something. So um, this book, as I was writing, I didn't read it to them um, in totality, but like certain sections. Do they think that you're like superhero now, superstar? We've talked to so many um so many authors who are legit superheroes, like legit, like superstars in, uh, in the publishing world. And they're like, yeah, man, my, my kids don't care about me. Like, I'm nothing. I'm just dad, you know? So like, does having like being able to like go into a bookstore and point to that book and be like, hey, man, that's me. That's my name. I wrote that. Like, does that mean anything to them? Like, Rhett Miller told us he's <laughs> at, his daughter is actively embarrassed when her friends are like, oh, my God, that's your dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, They haven't. Uh, let me see. They, uh, I think my nine year, like my nine year old will ask me to like sign posters so she could like take them to her teacher to like get. She's totally you know, selling them, isn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brownie points, you know, she's working the craft. Um, but my 11 year old, you know, it, it's, it's cool, but you know, it's cooler, um, when I meet and take pictures with authors that she likes. Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a picture with, uh, um, Oh God, the author of big Nate, um, Lincoln purse. Yes. Uh, I, I took a picture with him and, um, like she like lost her mind. Uh, <laughs> when I like gave her a book, she's like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's cool. That's you nice. did something. How sweet. Congrats. That's that's really awesome. <laughs> Good job, Dad. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, you were talking about about Tristan and um, you know taking on that role of a Nazi sem and 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 assuming you know the cultural narrative. But he also, like we've been saying, he's still a teenager and he's still kind of willing to sort of mouth off, you know. And he's he's thrust into this situation that he has no idea, you know, and and. Um, he's, he can, he can have a little attitude at times, which I love. Um, but it, it also sort of, uh, distinguishes him a little bit. Um, talk a little bit about why, um, that was important to his character. Um, because I think it's true. I I think it's true to life. Um, I, I don't think there is any scenario or I don't think there's any kid out there when, um, subjected to, uh, external and environmental and internal stress will not um, snap or push back mm-hmm. um, in certain circumstances. You know, even the most mild and well-mannered child has their limits. Um, you know, I'm dealing with it right now with my <laughs> with my daughters, right? You know, and we're we're learning boundaries and um, because they're not, you know, toddlers, they're not children or, or babies anymore. They're not infants. They're growing and they're experiencing the world, and like I and like we talked about earlier, they're internalizing what they're visualizing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Tristan, you know, he uh, he's dealing with a lot right now. He's dealing with a lot uh, on the inside. He's dealing with a lot on the outside, and um, he's being pushed to the limit. And I think it is important. Um, 
it is important to to show everyone, especially children who are reading these books, that um, they are subjected to and can feel stress. You know, it's really easy, I think, for us as adults to say, you know, what are you stressed about? Like, you have it easy. You have it made. Right. And that's not true, right? Um, and so I think it's important to show that kids can reach limits, too. And, you know, how they react after, you know, they've crossed or have been pushed far beyond, you know, they think they could ever go, you know, will define them later on in the future. And if we don't show that in books and media and film and in life, then we're doing these kids a disservice. Yeah. Has Zoe slammed the door on you yet, Jamie? Um, she slammed the door, but not in my face. Like <laughs> she slammed the door in anger, but not on me. <laughs> Jamie's Jamie's daughter is a little bit older than my son, who very recently just slammed the door in my face for the first time, and I was like, "Yeah, but You're yeah, like ten, dude." <laughs> yeah, my my daughter is ten, so she's right there with your with your daughter. So I feel your pain right now, <laughs> and dealing with it's... with the, with this drama that they bring home every day. <laughs> You know, it's it is it is absolutely amazing to me, and I uh, this thought occurred to me. I don't know. Uh, I think I was working on a revision of Tristan, and um, basically, like these these you know these kids are middle grade characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're they are the age of a middle grade character in the book, and like in uh, real life, it's so temp- you're so tempted to like just put your foot down. Right. And just be like, no, this is the way it's done. Don't do that. It's my way or the highway. You're living under my roof and so on and so on and so on. And then I go into the book and I'm like, all right, well, how can I have, you know, an engaged (laughs) and progressive conversation where we're investigating how each, you know, and it's like I've caught myself on several times like, man, I should go up there and we should talk. And it's. I don't know if I like that or not. It's like, <laughs> have you tried? Because I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's a fluid process. It's an evolving process that one day might get there. <laughs> so Tristan talks several times in the book about quote adult looks. You know the looks that kids yep. get from adults. What did you do to get those looks when you were younger? Um, it was always you're in a public space, right? The look is cultivated for public spaces because um it is a promise and it foretells you know great doom when you reach (laughs) or when you exit that public space um and so kids have to be very adept and learn very quickly when the look is coming and when the look has been given because there are several types there's that warning look there's that look of you got one more time and then there's that look of a promise and you don't want to reach the third. Um, and so it's like, you know, you're in a supermarket, you're cutting up with your your siblings, um, you're in church and you're wiggling too much in the pew um, or you're at uh, you're at a parent teacher conference and the teacher is telling your parents all of your business and you get the look and you're just like, <laughs> I might not make it back. from. <laughs> Avenge me. <laughs> <laughs> so Tristan is is sur- something that I noticed. Um, I've been trying to read more widely in the last couple of years. And so something that I noticed is that he is surrounded by women, um, primarily in the story, and who are all strong and powerful in different ways. But unlike in a lot of other books, it doesn't intimidate him that they're women. He doesn't feel the need to fight against it. He doesn't even seem particularly conscious of it. Um, So there isn't a lot of, like, boy-girl stuff when he disagrees. It's more of an ideological argument, Mm -hmm. um, which I really loved. Uh, And I love that both of my kids are seeing it as well. are there any specific models that those women are based on or the relationships? I know you said your mom. Um, I think they are um, combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, no one particular character is, you know, modeled directly after someone, but I may have taken um, portions um, from the women that I know in my life. Um 
So, like, for example, Nana, you know, um, I think is when I think of Nana, Nana is a traditional grandmother character um, who uh, knows more than she lets on. Um, like she's like the she's she's the traditional grandmother. But, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to see her, you know, uh, snowboarding, um, <laughs> you know, when you turn around. Um, and then, you know, the others are just there's there's something, you know, in writing where you say you just let it exist on the page, whether you're talking about relationships um, or whether you're talking about who exists in the world like you don't explain it you don't justify it it just exists it does and that's what i think the dynamic but uh that's what i think exists between tristan and the different characters that he uh interacts with um in terms of the the women and the girls who surround him um that was intentional at least for the uh the ones that are his age because i realized middle you know midway through the book that um, most of the folk heroes and gods that Tristan was interacting with were male um, in the book. And so I was like, that that is a problem. Um, and so I started introducing more uh, girls into the book, uh, more female characters, more women, to try and balance that out because, you know, it exists. Like, that's our life. Like, it's not... You're not going to walk it around, you know, the, the planet isn't 90% men as much as media would tell you otherwise. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, there is a balance here. And so I tried to get that balance. And but I still feel like I didn't do the best job. So in book two, I'm trying to highlight and focus focus more on the goddesses that exist in African-American folklore um, and in West African mythology to try and bring that to the forefront as well. That's amazing. I can't wait. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> I'm not even sure. I mean, this, I, I apologize. I'm not even sure. I, I think I missed that that you were even working on a book two right now. So to hear not only that there's a book two coming, but that that's what it's going to feature. Man, I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, I um, it's it's been my latest grind. It's trying to, <laughs> I mean, work on that sequel. Sequels are hard. And you still have a day job, right? Still have a day job. Yep. <laughs> so do you... All right. We're going to jump ahead for a few minutes here. Do you... Um, with the day job, do, are you still just, you know, finding the cracks in, 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 in writing then? Or have you structured your day in a way that you definitely have a certain amount of time every day? That, that's your dedicated writing time. Um, I find... Well, I write best in between the hours of 10 and 2, and obviously I can't do that with a day job. And so what I try to do is um, when I'm when I'm revising, it's easy because it's like you're not you're sort of thinking about it, but it's more, you know, you're reading what you've already written and, you know, trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm drafting and you have to be creative and think up and come up with, you know, these worlds and characters, that's when it gets tough. And so what I'll do is, you know, I'll come, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the kids. Uh, we'll try to get dinner on the table. We'll get our chores done. Uh, pretty much what I did before getting ready for this chat um, was, you know, rushing to make sure that they had showered and had stuff ready for tomorrow. And then, you know, once they're in bed, I come down to my office and then it's like it's a race. Um, I'm racing against my exhaustion um, because there'll be there'll come a period of time where I'm just typing the same word over and over and over. Um, and some, sometimes it's 15 minutes before that happens. Sometimes it's an hour. Um, but you would be surprised how much you can get done when you sit down and actually do that. Yeah. Uh, and when you're on a deadline, you don't have a choice. So, yeah. <laughs> how do you tune out social media? And what does that mean? <laughs> I don't. Is, I don't comprehend that. Is, By the way, my my daughter was the one who promised not to have a sap attack about snack mm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. I tweeted that I tweeted about yesterday. <laughs> See, I um, I uh, I'm I'm on Twitter right now, like as I'm talking to you. Guys, so <laughs> you know, 
I don't I don't tune out I don't tune out social media. It's a problem. Well, there are. I, I mean, there are. We've talked to people who like they have sheds in the backyard with no Wi-Fi. You know, like they've got power to plug in their computer, but like they they specifically or like they use the software that like turns off your internet for a few hours so you can just no, write there, what if you miss a good baby yoda meme Jamie? <laughs> it's no it's uh well for me it's less about you know social media like that's um i am i'm able to like write for good stretches um because i find that when i'm jumping on social media is when i'm having a trouble uh when i'm having trouble with a plot or i'm stuck on something and then i hop on um or i'm dealing with a difficult scenario that i don't want to in- interrogate as to why it's difficult for me at that moment and so i'll hop on social media um but i mean i can do that and still write like that'll that's fine that doesn't impact my writing but for me it's when i'm at home the distractions of home you know there are um, chores that need to be done there's you know lunches that need to be prepped for tomorrow there's you know dishes that need to be washed and you know kids that are still rumbling around upstairs and um video games that are in my office waiting to be played <laughs> so what i'll do what i try to do when i have a chance is i'll just scoot over to the library um for 45 minutes or so and that is like more than enough for me to bang out a scene or a couple of scenes real quick and if you do that consistently you know you'll be fine um i don't know if you two have heard of uh uh this web app called pacemaker um no. pacemaker.press yeah no. um with it you can like schedule your um writing time like i want to hit this deadline on this date and it'll break it it'll break it down by days. And so what it does for me is it tells me you don't have to you don't have to sit at the computer for 4 hours, hmm. you know, to make your goal, you know. You just have to be consistent in a way that works for you and your lifestyle and you'll get there. And I think part of the problem that we as writers face is we see the end goal and the total word count that we have to hit and it is daunting. But if you just break it down scene by scene, day by day, and you track your progress against, you know, where you're supposed to be, some days you'll be above it, some days you'll be under it. But as long as you stay consistent, or I say consistent, you know, we'll be on track. Yeah. Does the, uh, you know, you're always on Twitter. Does the, uh, does that, does the community that you have on your social media feeds, does that help you sort of hit those deadlines and make it through and say like, okay, these are other writers that I interact with. They're all dealing with the same thing. They all can do it. I can do it too. Because I have to imagine at some point when you get on and you just scroll through and you see like book birthday, book birthday, this person just got an arc. This person just got a manuscript. Like you're seeing the end results of everybody and you're, you're, you're forgetting all the work that led them there. But it's so easy on Twitter, I think to just, to just see all those results and forget about the work that came before. Yeah, and and I think that is something that you have to remember, not just with writing, but with everything that you see, you know, nearly everything that you see in social social media is cultivated. It is curated content specifically tailored uh, for social media. When I take a picture of an arc that I, you know, I'm going to post one later. When I take a picture of an arc that I received, I'm not showing you my messy house. I'm showing you me holding up the arc in a beautiful location. It's great, but you're not seeing the mess behind me. Right. And it's just like that with writers. Like, you know, when you see, you know, a book deal or book birthday or, or what have you, um, somebody signed an agent, uh, somebody got a multi book deal. Like you're, you're seeing, you know, a facet. You're seeing the tip of the iceberg. Iceberg. You're not examining the mess in the background behind them or beneath them, right? Um, and so you just have to take that into. And it can be daunting, you know, as especially as someone who you know maybe you haven't been published yet. Maybe you are looking for a deal. Maybe you're looking for an agent. It can be overwhelming. Um, and to that, I say, you have to curate your feed sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Um, when I first got on Twitter, I would follow um, anyone that kind of had a mutual interest with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized very quickly that that was damaging for my mental health. Like seeing, you know, 
not necessarily anything writing related even it could be you know twitter arguments it could be you know what's happening in the news it could be world events um and so what i had to realize very quickly is that this is my timeline right Mm -hmm. so i need to curate this to put me you know i hop on twitter when i am um I hop on Twitter not when I'm well I do I do it I just hop on Twitter like there's no <laughs> there's no follow up to that I just stay on Twitter <laughs> just but, period <laughs> it, it period but I get on it so much because my feed brings me joy like mm-hmm. I have Marie Kondoed my feed and so if nice. you know this is if those tweets aren't sparking joy then you know why are you reading them why do you have them on your timeline same so, same yeah. I realized I'd finally done a good job of that the other day when ha- my timeline was all writers I really enjoy who are like, yeah, I'm so see writing, but here I am on Twitter, just like <laughs> me. Um, and then the rest was Baby Yoda <laughs> or people talking about Titans wanting to see Nightwing's butt. I'm like, oh, my brand. I finally found it. <laughs> exactly. Curate your timeline so it's your brand. and Like, it, it's no, you know, nobody's judging you for, you know, you wanting to see what you want to see. Like, it's... Be specific and um, direct in who you want to follow and what you want to see, and you'll be good. Mm-hmm. Do you do you still have time to read? <laughs> not as much as not as much as I would like, um, because I'm always on the go. Um, it's hard because I like reading, you know. Um, I am uh when I start reading, I don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you know, my mother, you know, would tell you that I would get a book and that book was my focus, you know, not food, not um, going playing or video games, that book. And I'm and I'm still like that. And so uh, it's almost like I have to, like, schedule it, you know, like I have to put. A, a calendar in uh, event read you know exactly <laughs> your, your like, phone dings and says time to read now um but then the other thing is that when you're writing you got to be very careful with what you're reading mm-hmm. um because for me personally i don't want to absorb uh someone else's cadence or writing style or word particularities um so I, when i'm writing i try to avoid reading within that genre I try to avoid reading, you know, middle grade and sometimes even YA. Like I'll read nonfiction or, you know, adult science fiction or horror. Actually, a lot of horror because horror is like, for me, the complete opposite of what I'm writing right now. (laughs) And so it's like, yeah, that's not going to seep in at all. You're not going to take any of that. So so that's interesting. Have you read the other books in the Rick Riordan Presents line? When I, yes, I've read... um, who haven't I read? I haven't read because we get, you know, we get uh, arcs yeah. a little bit ahead. Um, and so I just received, um, was it Paula Santiago's? Uh, I haven't read that one yet because at the time I got it, I was working on Tristan 2. Um, and so that's that one's probably next up on the agenda. But like Arusha and Dragon Pearl and Sal and Gabby, like I devoured those. The Storm, the Storm Runner, like I devoured those when they, was, you know, first came out because Tristan One was pretty much done. We were just working on edits and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have because I have to imagine like the the subconsciously, like you're not going to knowingly pull ideas, but because these books all have that shared through line of gods and humans existing together. Like there's got to be some part of you as a storyteller that's going to file something away subconsciously and be like, "Ooh, that's that's really good. I'm I'm, I'm going to keep that for later." Listen, I was I was working on a a YA just playing around, and I was like, "Oh, this is the best YA idea I have ever had. This is going to be incredible. It's going to be a breakout. It's going to be a bestseller." It's oh wait, no, Victoria Schwab just did that. Like <laughs> it was. I'm like I'm serious. Like I had like magic system and then i had forgot that i had just uh um, <laughs> you just read that book read a, yeah i just read her book and i was like oh that's why i felt i was so brilliant okay it's it it's shocking that that does not happen more often or i mean maybe it does and people just don't talk about it and they might not even realize it i think in this specific instance it was so uh, um unique mm-hmm. that i recognized it i was like 
you know, because I was rereading. I reread it. Uh, what was uh, a darker? I think it's a darker shade, darker of, magic. shade of magic. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, I'm reread that. Um, and then I was like, wait a minute. I put that in my book. <laughs> I put that. And I have to throw the whole manuscript away. Um, oh, no. And so it was so unique. I was like, you know what? Okay, no more reading the same genre and age range as, you know, I'm writing within that genre and age range. Yeah, probably a good rule. Probably a good rule. Shiri, we have kept the man uh, longer than we, we said have. we were going to. Do you have anything that you want to go out on? Any last question? Well, I did a recipe challenge this year where for um, Jamie's blog, uh, I cooked 100 things I had never made before. What is your favorite thing that I should try to make next year? <laughs> um, key lime pie. <laughs> have you ever okay. made a key lime pie? I don't think I have. I've made lemon meringue, but I don't think I've made okay. key lime. Got to do it. It's, All the right. pie, it's the pie of champions. It's you know never been dethroned, so I encourage you to attempt it. All right, I'll put it on the list. <laughs> and the lightsaber question. Oh, since yeah. I know from your Twitter that you're a Star Wars fan, uh-huh. if you're light, you could have a lightsaber any color. What color would it be? Um. I have never seen a black lightsaber, um, but like a glistening, like a obsidian black, electric black lightsaber, like that would be my color. Nice. Cool. Tommy Adeyemi told me that too. Black? Yeah, it's just, you've never, I've never seen it. And so I, I, I have to do what hasn't been done. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Jiminy Crickets. Jiminy Crickets is a network of three Disney-flavored infotainment productions presented each and every month by yours truly, Disney Chris. And me, Ruthie Brown. Dateline Jiminy Crickets is our YouTube video show, providing a monthly rundown of the latest news and current events from the Walt Disney Company. Jiminy Crickets, our flagship program, is an audio podcast covering the history, legacy, and behind-the-scenes stories of Walt Disney and his legendary creative team of artists and Imagineers. Our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Down the Rabbit Hole, is an off-the-cuff, roundtable discussion of all manner of Disney topics, from the controversial to the thought-provoking. So be sure to catch the cricket for loads of witty banter, spirited debate, and fun conversation between two Disney geeks who find common ground in their passion for Disney. So see you real soon. And always let your conscience be your guide.